Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. The billionaire-backed Coke Network endorses Nikki Haley for president. Two missiles are fired toward a U.S. Navy ship from Yemen. Three Chinese Navy ships arrive in Myanmar for joint drills. Russia intensifies its assault on the Donetsk city of Avdivka. The U.N. warns that the global response to AIDS is under threat due to stigmas. Idaho asks the Supreme Court to allow its near-total abortion ban. Portland's first-ever teacher strike comes to an end. Mozambique authorizes an $80 billion energy transition plan. New Zealand scraps its world-leading generational smoking ban. And an outbreak of bird flu in Argentina kills hundreds of flamingos. The Koch Network endorses Nikki Haley for president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, CNN, Fox News, and the New York Times. Americans for Prosperity Action, the political network associated with billionaire Charles Koch, threw its weight behind former South Carolina Governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in the Republican presidential primary race on Tuesday. The decision, which is the first time the network has endorsed a primary candidate, comes seven weeks before the Iowa caucus. AFP Action said its support would begin with a multi-million dollar ad campaign launching this week in all early and several Super Tuesday states. During the 2022 midterm elections, AFP reportedly knocked on around five and a half million doors, made two million calls, and sent out nearly 70 million pieces of mail. Tactics Haley currently lacks compared to fellow candidate Ron DeSantis. The Koch Network has also raised over $70 million for political races as of this summer and spent $9 million on anti-Donald Trump material. While this endorsement will help Haley compete against DeSantis, Trump remains the dominant frontrunner. In response, both the Trump and DeSantis campaigns criticized the move, with the Florida governor's team equating the endorsement to a donation to the former president, while a spokesman for Trump called AFP the political arm of the China First, America Last movement. Though AFP has decided to pick Haley as its favorite alternative to Trump, it does have its policy differences with the former governor. While Haley criticized Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, AFP supported the move, and Haley called for military strikes against Iran, something the Koch's foreign policy operation has opposed. All right, Melissa just laid out the facts on this story, and now for some narrative spin, starting with the anti-Trump narrative from National Review. At this point, Republican voters aren't quite sure whether DeSantis or Haley is better, but they do know that Trump is the worst one of them all and must be defeated. As DeSantis' campaign has been struggling since its launch, his hope has been to retain the support of the donor class. With the Koch endorsement, however, Haley will not only gain the incredible funding and grassroots activism provided by AFP, but the donor class may change their mind on who they'd prefer to back. And here's a pro-Trump narrative from the New Republic. It's unclear why the Koch network hates Trump so much, given that under his presidency, many of its preferred policies were enacted. While this could be seen as a boost to the Haley campaign, Trump is way ahead of any other candidate with a national average of 61.6% in the polls, compared to Haley's 9.8%. AFP seems to be giving it its best shot, but Trump's popularity and AFP's non-existent policy qualms with the former president 
make this a curious decision at best. And we have from time to time statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they say there's a 3.6% chance that Nikki Haley will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. If there's one thing, like them or don't like them, this Coke operation is calculated. I mean, it feels like they, do they know something we don't? Is this just a Hail Mary against Trump? Uh, you know, they're not known for just doing things willy-nilly. Right. Yeah, they are making a statement for sure. Yeah, Maybe it's know. just a bet that, you know, in the event that Trump gets disqualified for some reason, legal uh, or otherwise, medical, who knows, they're just saying, in case that happens, we'll get the person we want, I guess. I don't know. Uh, okay, so maybe it's a, uh, it's a my fair lady, she's all that. Like, I bet you I could turn this person into a winner, you know? Right. Too bad Nikki Haley doesn't wear glasses or we could just take them off and it would be a whole different thing. News from Yemen. Missiles are fired at a U.S. Navy ship from Houthi territory. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, BBC News, CNN, Business Insider and The New York Times. U.S. Central Command reported that two ballistic missiles were fired from Houthi-controlled territory in Yemen on Monday morning toward the location where the Navy destroyer USS Mason was rescuing a commercial boat called the MV Central Park from an attempted hijacking by Somali pirates in the Gulf of Aden. The missiles landed about 10 nautical miles away from the vessels, causing no damage or injuries. While the Yemeni government blamed the Iran-backed Houthis for the attack, the rebels didn't take credit for either the seizure or the missile. U.S. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder told reporters that the Pentagon is still assessing whether the destroyer was the intended target of the attack, as well as whether the five Somali suspect pirates who attacked the commercial vessel over the weekend have any ties to the Houthi rebels. The suspicion comes as the Houthis have vowed to target Israel over its war against Hamas in Gaza, firing several missiles and drones toward Israel following its retaliatory campaign in response to the October 7th attack. Last week, Houthi naval forces renewed a warning to ships in the Red Sea waving the Israeli flag, managed by Israeli companies or owned by Israelis, as well as to any military units providing protection to Israeli ships. MV Central Park is a chemical tanker managed by London-based company Zodiac Maritime, whose controller is allegedly the Israeli-born shipping magnate Eyal Ofer. The ship and the 22 crew members are reportedly safe and unharmed. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with an anti-Iran narrative from the New York Post. Though shocking, this missile attack isn't surprising at all. Since the Israel-Hamas war began, Iranian-backed forces have attacked U.S. and coalition troops in the Middle East dozens of times. Because maritime security is crucial to regional stability, the U.S. and its allies will work incessantly to ensure safety and prevent further escalations in the conflict. And the Tasnim News Agency brings us the pro-Iran narrative. It's quite absurd to claim that Iran has anything to do with incidents such as this missile incident. The Houthi-led Yemeni forces are taking measures to express support for the Palestinian cause, as well as to counter Israeli aggression in the region. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. 
I think there's a pretty funny anecdote I heard about this, this uh, couple in Brazil who named their child Uznavi. And they were like, what, what is, what's Uznavi? Is that a family name? And they're like, oh, no, we saw it on a boat. And they're like, you mean U.S. Oh, Navy? Uznavi. Uznavi. <laughs> Honestly, not a bad name. It's you kind know, of that's, pretty if, you know, yeah, if you speak we, Portuguese. It's better Uznavi. than another GD Michael. Like, we'd rather have more Uznavis <laughs> and less Michaels or Jennifers or whatever, you know? Yeah. Chinese Navy ships arrive in Myanmar amid heightened tensions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN. The Irrawaddy. South China Morning Post and The Telegraph. Three Chinese Navy ships, including the destroyer Zebo and the frigate Jingzhou, docked at ports in Yangon, Myanmar on Monday afternoon with a 700-strong naval task force on board to conduct joint naval security drills. The vessels are part of the People's Liberation Army's 44th Naval Fleet, which has carried out anti-piracy operations in the Gulf of Aden and off the Somali coast since 2008. Earlier this month, they were sighted in the United Arab Emirates. This visit comes as Myanmar's military junta currently faces the biggest challenge to his hold on power since taking over nearly three years ago, as an alliance of three powerful ethnic rebel militias in coordination with resistance forces launched a major offensive late last month. An estimated 20,000 resistance fighters have taken part in Operation 1027, seizing at least 303 Junta outposts and killing hundreds of Junta troops across the country since October 27. According to the UN, nearly 335,000 people have been displaced, and almost 200 civilians have been killed in the escalation. China's official PLA Daily on Sunday called for an immediate ceasefire in Myanmar after a rebel group claimed control of a border trading point on the weekend. A day earlier, the Chinese military started four-day exercises along its border with Myanmar for the first time since 2017. The United States Institute of Peace concluded in a report this month that tacit Chinese support was crucial to the success of Operation 1027, hypothesizing that it was in retaliation for the junta's failure to crack down on violent scam gangs targeting Chinese citizens. Thanks, Melissa. The progressive voice of Myanmar brings us the anti-China narrative. These joint naval drills can only reinforce that Beijing doesn't care about the suffering of the Burmese people under the military junta's tight grip at all, focusing exclusively on its own economic interests, particularly on projects related to the Belt and Road Initiative. As the spring revolution gains momentum, it's clear that the PRC has chosen the wrong side of history. Here's the pro-China narrative from China Daily. Beijing has long sought to foster friendly relations based on the principle of mutual non-interference. So it's utterly reprehensible to say that China wants to meddle in Myanmar's internal affairs. Critics may claim that the PRC has boosted support for an alleged favored side, but in reality... Its latest actions aim to deal with any unforeseen spillover from the conflict in the country. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Myanmar will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by 2028. We got these um, books from the Seattle Central Library that talk, right? Mm. They're, they're like, uh, you know, you push a player and then you, you know, you kind of follow through. So if you can't read at a, you know, 
third grade level and you're only a toddler, you can kind of let the book read to you. I'll have um, to check these out. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Um, not just for lazy parents. All right. Mm. But uh, <laughs> the ones we got are in different languages. So we've got a couple in, in Chinese that will read like a very simple story with a nice rhyme and you get to hear it in Chinese, see the Chinese characters and see like the kind of phonetic English spelling of it. So and then they'll read it in English underneath. Uh, and it's my favorite book because it's you get to see the phonetic Chinese and hear it. And to me, it is like, what? Is that really what they just said? <laughs> like the sounds right. are so different, too, uh, than what you would see in, in phonetic English. And it's really kind of fun. Russia intensifies their assault on Avdivka in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euromaiden Press, the Institute for the Study of War, Newsweek, The Independent, and Reuters. Russian forces are intensifying their push to capture the Donetsk city of Adivka, by Tali Barabash, head of Ukraine's military administration in the city, said in a broadcast on Tuesday. Barabash told the Ukrainian outlet Espresso TV, things in the Avdivka sector have become even tougher. The intensity of clashes has been increasing for some time. The Russians have opened up two more sectors from which they have begun making assaults, in the direction of Donetsk City and in the so-called industrial zone. The enemy is attempting to storm the city from all directions. After Russia launched a major offensive on Avdivka in October, it has since poured in at least 40,000 troops and surrounded the city from three directions. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last month labeled the situation around Avdivka, sometimes referred to as the gateway to Donetsk, as, quote, particularly tough. In an analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S.-affiliated military think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, the organization reported on Sunday that Russia had continued to make confirmed gains near Avdivka, including the capture of a railway station and an industrial zone in the city's outskirts. ISW reported that battles are ongoing for the Avdivka Coke plant, a facility in the city's northwest. The analysis also reported that Russia made confirmed gains elsewhere on the front lines, including the Luhansk region, where Russia was said to be advancing near Kupiansk. According to ISW, heavy fighting continued to be reported in Kherson, western Zaporizhia, and the Donetsk city of Bakhmut. In the most recent report from ISW, the think tank said heavy fighting continued near the cities of Avdivka and Bakhmut in Donetsk, as well as in Kherson, western Zaporizhia, and Luhansk but reported that neither Russia nor Ukraine had made confirmed advances in territory in the last 24 hours. This comes as a storm and severe winter weather lashed large swaths of Russia and Ukraine, dumping as much as 10 inches of snow in some areas, with millions of people on both sides left without electricity. In Ukraine, at least 10 people were killed and 23 injured, most of them in the Odessa region. Hurricane-strength winds and flooding were also reported, in Russia's Black Sea regions of Krasnodar, Rostov, and Dagestan, as well as in Crimea and the Russian-occupied territories of Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. Four people were killed in Russian-controlled territories. Thank you, Scott. We'll start with a pro-Ukraine narrative from BNN. As another winter approaches Ukraine, it's clear that Russia will once again use the despicable tactic of bombing the country's civilian energy facilities as it did last year, making rolling blackouts a feature of daily life in Ukraine. The country's better prepared to deal with such attacks than 12 months ago, 
but Ukrainians should still expect to see Russian President Putin's attacks coming. And the pro-Russian narrative from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and a mindset that they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. There's another nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict before 2024. The U.N. says the AIDS response is under threat due to its stigmas. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, U.S. News & World Report, NBC, The New Indian Express, and Xinhua. The United Nations AIDS program says that the global response to the disease is under threat due to a backlash against lifestyles that stigmatize groups most at risk of contracting the HIV infection. Winnie Bayanyima, executive director of UNAIDS, said that countries with laws targeting the LGBTQ community, sex work, and drug use are seeing a rise or plateau in new infections. Bayan Yima told Reuters that such laws are a pushback against human rights and that they undermine the UN's work to fight AIDS. UN AIDS hopes to end AIDS as a public threat by 2030, which Bayan Yima said was still achievable. The UN first set 2030 as the target of ending AIDS as a public threat in 2015. 39 million people around the world live with HIV the virus that causes AIDS. 20.8 million of those people live in eastern and southern Africa, while 6.5 million reside in Asia and the Pacific. 30 million people receive treatment for HIV, but 630,000 people died from the disease in 2022. The WHO Europe and the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, or ECDC, reported over 110,000 HIV diagnoses in 2022 with a total of 2.4 million cases, a 4.2% increase. They also advocate more testing and ending stigmas about communities with high rates of the virus. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin from GLAAD. The erosion of human rights in many countries is not only a significant moral concern, but it also undermines the progress made toward ending AIDS as a public health threat. Countries are passing inhumane laws against the LGBTQ community, further stigmatizing a marginalized group that's at greater risk of contracting HIV. Countries should focus on helping communities by fighting AIDS instead of stigmatizing vulnerable groups. The National Review brings us a right narrative. Political correctness poses a far greater threat to public health and ending diseases like AIDS than these laws do. Groups like the UN and other so-called public health organizations promulgate this worldview, but it's not correct. Promoting a healthy and moral society will go a long way towards ending AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 32% chance that the number of people globally living with HIV or AIDS in 2037 will be more than in 2017. Next up, Idaho seeks a stay from the Supreme Court to enforce its abortion law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Reuters, and Forbes. Lawyers from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who are representing the state of Idaho, requested Monday that the U.S. Supreme Court grant an emergency stay allowing the state to enforce its Defense of Life Act, which forbids abortion at all stages of pregnancy, 
with exceptions for the life of the mother and victims of rape or incest. Under the law, which took effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, doctors and other medical professionals can face a minimum sentence of two years in prison and a six-month license suspension if found guilty of criminal abortion. A stay would overturn the preliminary injunction put on by U.S. District Judge B. Lynn Windmill in August 2022 that ruled the abortion law breaches the 1986 Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which ensures patients receive emergency stabilizing care. In September, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit overturned Windmill's ruling, but the full Ninth Circuit Court later reinstated the injunction. Idaho Republican Attorney General Raul Labrador has argued that the federal government is using a flawed interpretation of the act, which he and the state's lawyers say doesn't mention abortion or require anything prohibited by the Idaho law. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start with these spins of the Republican narrative from Fox News. The Supreme Court should grant the stay or take the case. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe, it gave abortion powers to the states. And this is a desperate attempt by the federal government to usurp that. Amtala doesn't mention abortion and can't be used to interfere in a state's ability to regulate the practice of medicine as it sees fit within its borders. And the Democratic narrative from Huffington Post. The stay must be left in place. This law is causing immense needless suffering not just to women, but also to their medical professionals and caregivers. Beyond stripping women of their right to choose, the law is forcing practitioners to flee the state leaving all pregnant women with a shortage of doctors and medical costs are going through the roof. Well, the problem is they hired a dog to be their attorney general. <laughs> yeah, it's an Airbud lawyer situation. Yeah. What would you call so you know Airbud, the 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 the, the dog that dog. can play basketball. And then there was Airbud seventh inning fetch and then there was Airbud. So they always have like a name you know, like right. a, a, a sports-related pun. Yeah. What would you call the lawyer version of the Airbud movie? What would Ooh. be your like dog pun Airbud mm. movie? So it's Airbud something 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 like lawyer version. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Court is adjourned. Trial by furry. That's the Tri- that's the only thing Trial I've got. Trial by furry. Okay, that <laughs> is that's actually pretty. That's pretty damn good. That, that that's better than Airbud Spikes Back because that's not even a pun. That's just that's a pun on like the Empire Strikes Back or something. Right, right. Uh, so that's you. It, it, Trial by furry. I'm into that. You did it. Trial by furry. <laughs> that's good. You did it. Thank you. All right. Whew, thank God. I'm glad that's over. <laughs> <laughs> The Portland, Oregon teacher's strike ends. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, the Associated Press, Axios, Fox News, and Oregon Public Broadcasting. More than 40,000 Portland students Monday returned to classes after the end of the city's first-ever teacher's strike, which started November 1st. Members of the Portland Association of Teachers on Sunday came to a tentative agreement with Portland Public Schools. Union members were scheduled to vote on the contract Tuesday, while the PPS school board plans to hear public comment on the deal and then vote on it at its meeting Tuesday evening. Teachers who went on strike over issues related to salaries, classroom size, and mental health support for students, among other things, will receive a 13.8% cost-of-living increase over the next three years in addition to opportunities to earn more. There will be added classroom time for elementary and middle school students, and teachers will receive more planning time. 
Students missed 11 days of school, but will make up for it with a shorter winter break, three fewer days of summer vacation, and three days added to the school calendar that were previously days off. All right. Thanks, Melissa. We have a right narrative spin from National Review. It's about time the teachers dropped their untenable financial demands and did what's best for children who still missed far too much school. The teachers' union victimized both children and their parents who were having COVID shutdown stress disorders while the strikers were on the picket lines. It's time to get back to work and do what's best for the kids. Here's the left narrative from CNN. The teachers' union did what was necessary to secure vital improvements and financial commitments for a better future for both teachers and students. This was a watershed moment for the teachers of Portland, but also another case of workers from varying sectors in the U.S. getting fed up and using union action to force better working conditions. News from COP28, Mozambique will present its $80 billion energy transition plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Live, Daba Finance, Al Jazeera and Reuters. According to a top energy official on Monday, Mozambique has authorized an ambitious new energy transition plan that would last until 2050 in the hopes of attracting investments of about $80 billion to expand the availability of electricity and boost renewable energy capabilities. The Mozambican energy strategy is anticipated to be unveiled on December 2nd to prospective donors and international partners during the COP28 climate meeting in Dubai. The first phase of the plan is expanding the transmission grid to handle additional renewable energy and adding 2,000 megawatts of hydropower capacity by 2030. The plan also calls for finishing the recently announced Umpanda Unkunwa hydropower project and transitioning to electric cars to cut emissions from the transportation sector. Pedro Samao, special advisor to the Minister of Energy, said that the revised version of Mozambique's national energy policy is expected to be made public later this week. The new policy was authorized by Mozambique's Council of Ministers on November 21st. In November 2022, the southern African nation exported liquefied natural gas for the first time. Mozambique hopes that its abundant gas discoveries and its potential for renewable energy will drive economic growth and ameliorate poverty. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from Fatshimetri. Mozambique is joining a growing number of developing countries that are looking to the international community for assistance, making the switch from fossil fuels like coal to cleaner energy sources. Mozambique will present an investment strategy at the COP summit in Dubai. The ambitious plan is a revolutionary development for African nations, and Mozambique is leading the way to create a sustainable future for Africa and the world. And Narrative B comes from Business Tech Africa. Mozambique's government is trying to participate in the global initiative of reducing reliance on fossil fuels, and its new energy transition plan is certainly an ambitious endeavor. However, Mozambique is one of the world's poorest nations and has a long way to go to bring stable energy to its people. It will take a great deal of effort from this East African nation and the global community to make this renewable energy moonshot a success. Here are the nerds from Metaculus again, saying there's a 2% chance that renewable energy will contribute 25% or less to global electricity production in 2030. Here's for trying, right? One of the poorest countries in Africa is like, uh, you know what? We're going to at least get involved in this conversation here and come yeah, up with some plans. Yeah, I respect it. Yeah, we're going to this thing. Like, I, I always think... Um, 
you know, if I was invited to host SNL, hint, hint, or like I was invited into a band or something, I would come with a good skit or song in my pocket. And if I didn't have one, I would get one before I showed up. Yes. So I'm coming to the thing with a thing. You, you know, need if, to if, look like you care. Right. Yeah. And like, yeah. and I have, a, you know, if, if Dave Grohl says, Hey, Scott, we've been looking for a new tambourine player in the Foo Fighters, like you're in, then I would show up with a song. If I had to pay a bunch of people to make a song for me yeah. before I showed up, that's what I'm doing. I'm coming with something in my pocket. Even if yes. they don't like it, it shows that, like, here I am. Right. Here's my thing. My this contribution. Is your, this is your one chance to get on this stage and be heard. Yeah. And maybe, maybe they don't it. like it. That's fine. But the, it's not an option for me to show up like, all right, guys, what are we doing? Like, yeah. that's not going to work. And yes. uh, so I like Mozambique. They're coming with a binder with this thing. And if hopefully people like it. But if not, that's OK. We're, we're doing something yeah. good for them. Right. At least they know. OK, from where we sit in the world, here's what we think we can do. You know, mm -hmm. Given some consideration. You did your homework. Also, Melissa, will you help me write my SNL sketch? Because I need, I don't have it. And next I, week's I would be up happy soon. to. I would, I've got some good dog puns for you. Oh, good. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> New Zealand will reverse its generational smoking ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, the New Zealand Herald, Reuters, ABC Australia, and CNA. New Zealand's newly formed coalition government has revealed that it intends to reverse legislation introduced under the former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern to ban cigarette sales in 2024 to individuals born after 2008. Luxon's coalition government, which was sworn in on Monday, has stated its desire to repeat anti-smoking amendments, which also included limiting the amount of nicotine in cigarettes, as well as a reduction of tobacco retailers from 6,000 to 600 by March 2024. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon explained the decision, warning that the Ardern-era policy could lead to an increased black market, while realities of practical enforcement pose some issues. Nicola Wilson, New Zealand's new Minister of Finance, has also claimed that the policy would have reduced tax revenues. Smoked products will be taxed, while disposable vapes will be banned alongside greater penalties for those who sell to underage customers. Willis continued that the legislation would have had a significant impact on government books, while health coalition Aotearoa had estimated that the laws would have saved $1.2 billion in health system costs over a period of 20 years. Meanwhile, according to British American Tobacco, the tobacco industry makes the largest financial contribution to New Zealand's economy, claiming it brings in over $1.2 billion every year. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Daily News and News Monitor. The prohibition of substances never works, and New Zealand's smoking ban was a poor decision in the first place. Those who couldn't have legally purchased cigarettes would have accessed them regardless, and the country's black market would have inevitably grown. While the government may have found alternatives to provide meaningful tax cuts, the reversal of cigarette prohibition kills two birds with one stone. Narrative B comes from First Post. This decision prioritizes short-term funding over the long-term health of the country. With New Zealand's health services losing out on at least hundreds of millions of savings over the next two decades, as well as approximately 5,000 deaths a year no longer predicted to be prevented. The nation's younger generation is destined to bear the brunt of this poor decision later down the line. 
and a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that a country will implement a total civilian ban on the consumption and smoking of tobacco by January 2033. Our final story, an Argentinian bird flu kills hundreds of flamingos. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BNN, OI Canada, El País, and Reuters. Argentina has reported that an outbreak of the highly pathogenic H5N1 avian flu virus has killed at least 220 flamingos in the country's northwestern province of Catamarca. The virus has so far infected flocks of the James flamingo species, Puna flamingo, which the International Union for Conservation of Nature classifies as near-threatened. Though the risk of spread to humans is extremely low, biodiversity official Annabella Ahumada has advised residents to take precautions and not come into contact with sick or dead birds without adequate protection. Argentina's health authorities first detected the bird flu cases on a broiler farm in the northern province of Rio Negro in February and immediately canceled poultry exports. In August, the country's agricultural secretary announced that Argentina was free of avian flu after 18 outbreaks in commercial farms and dozens of sea lions died on the country's Atlantic coast. The H5N1 avian flu virus outbreak has also affected Germany, killing poultry among a flock of 24,000 on a farm in the northeastern state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern as of November 22nd. Here's Narrative A from Wired. The loss of the rare flamingos is a significant blow to Argentina's biodiversity and ecosystem. Moreover, as the strain of H5N1 is spreading to an unprecedented number of countries, infecting and killing rare, wild, and backyard birds indiscriminately. It may ultimately spread to humans by infecting other hosts such as minks. The global community must contain the outbreak swiftly before it can break into a catastrophic human pandemic. And the new scientist brings us narrative B. It's usual for bird flu to strike during autumn and winter. James flamingos are migratory birds and the natural hosts of the H5N1 virus, which is the main factor in its spread this year, as we have only seen rare and non-sustained transmission of H5N1 to and between humans in prior decades. There's no need to create an alarmist apocalypse scenario. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus, this one saying there's a 15% chance that at least one mink farm worker will die from any strain of bird flu in 2023. Oh, poor flamingos. Uh, I know. They smell terrible. They do. I didn't know about. I didn't know that. I always pass the flamingos at the zoo on the way to Zoo Museum. Right. And they stink. <laughs> and everyone knows the zoo is your happy place, so you would, you know, like, you don't want this to be the case. It's just they stink. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And and it's kind of like, well, it's my happy place, so that you know, it's a good stink. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 29th, twenty twenty three. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Thank you.